Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. We are on the heels of being one year old as a podcast, and I'm so grateful. I've cultivated gratitude at such a level for the amazing heart-centered leaders that I have met around the globe. The gentleman that I want to interview today, I'm very excited to introduce. His name is Blair Shepard. Blair is a global leader for strategy and leadership for the PwC Network. Blair has been with PwC since 2012, and as a global leader, he is responsible for articulating their global strategy across 158 countries and the development of the current and next generation of PwC leaders. Blair has spent the majority of his career at the Fuqua School of Business, Duke University. And during his tenure, he has had several roles, including Associate Dean for Executive Education. And he is one of the world's first blended degrees, the Global Executive MBA and founding CEO and chairman of Duke Corporate Education, which was rated as the world's top provider for custom executive education for nine years in a row. He has advised more than 100 companies and governments in the area of leadership, corporate strategy, organizational relationships, and design, and he has published more than 50 books and articles. So Blair, welcome to the show. Um, I'm thrilled to be there. And you forgot the single most important fact, right, which is I went to Western Ontario. Well, I was going to bring it up. I was going to say you're a fellow Canadian because you, the yes. first thing you said to yes. me before I hit record was I missed the accent. We, we always forget that we have an accent, right? Until someone points it out. Yeah, it, I feel like I'm at home talking to you. So thank you for that. Well, I want to thank you. I know you are, you are a very busy gentleman. So I've got some great leadership questions and I'm truly honored to have you on the show today. So thank you for fitting me into your busy schedule. Honored to be on. Now, last April, I just want to kind of preface my first leadership question with some context. Last April, I remember reading a fabulous article that you published on Medium. And I think we were all kind of getting a little bit weary with the word pivot. And I remember seeing the word adapt and how you alluded that it was more relevant now in the COVID-19 world. And I was like, we finally have a new word. 90 days in. And just to let our listeners know, ADAPT was a framework that was developed through the PwC team, standing for asymmetry, disruption, age, polarization, and trust. So my first leadership question is, I would love for you to give us kind of the Coles Notes version of the framework. But more importantly, here we are almost 12 months since you've written this. Tell us where you feel we've adapted 
in our ability within leadership? So um, the, the word was actually a, a wonderful word to create because what we were doing was describing the five worries that everyone in the world had. This is pre-COVID. Um, and what was amazing, actually, Deb, is that, is that every, it is every place in the world, um, at all levels of society, they're worried about largely the same thing. Um, and, and in some ways, what COVID did was accelerate those worries, right? So it essentially, it, what, it, what it does is, is, is describe the leadership challenge we have, right? Which is how do we actually take the issues implied in those five worries and actually create the world we want versus let the world go where it would go if we didn't intervene, right? Um, and and that that and it requires leadership across virtually everyone's society, right? So it's not just a it's not just a an idea for those who have formal authority. It's every citizen of every town and every village has to do something to ensure that we go the direction we need to go. Um, so I think what COVID did for us in an interesting way is uh, there, to me, there are, there are three silver linings that come from COVID related to leadership. The first one is we learned we could do things massively and fast. And, and some of the challenges that are in there. So one of the sources of the disruption we talk about is climate. And we have 10 years to get it right, or the world's in trouble and humanity's in trouble, which, which, which means we better adapt really quickly, right? Um, and what we learned is that when you focus on a single problem and you take it really seriously and, and everyone in society agrees on it, then um, we can actually act ridiculously quickly. I mean, if I bet you um, uh, three years ago that the entire economy of Canada would shut down for months, you would have taken that bet, right? Um, so that's the first one. Second one, I think, is we saw attributes of leaders that um, were successful that I think are really important for us to carry forward. Um, and um, they, they were that we had this kind of leader we were looking at that was of a crumbling age in a way. And out of COVID, we saw the people who handled it brilliantly. And they had really different characteristics from the people who came before. So we saw that. And then I think the third thing is the world came to understand um, that, that we share things in common more than we think we do. And, um, and that nature is pretty unforgiving if you don't treat it well. So a uh, pretty nasty thing, but, but, but three serious silver linings, I think. I love the way that you framed that. And I'm just, I'm sitting here and my, my mind's just going <laughs> in all kinds of directions with a massive smile. First of all, it's nice to hear and refreshing to hear someone say that there's silver linings out of COVID. I haven't used those exact words, but I have continued for, for over a year now to always find the positive in this. I agree with you. We have had massively and fast dealt with challenges. And I think the vaccine, I come from a, a medical rehab background. So to see something that normally takes a 10 year period be done quickly, efficiency and with efficacy in six months was phenomenal to me. Yep. The second silver lining that you talked about, I've also witnessed with the organizations, executives and C-suite leaders that I coach. I would love to hear what differentiating characteristics you have seen when you talk about attributes of leadership, because I'd love to have your vantage point on this. So, so if you do, um, 
just it, what what's worth doing is thinking about think about the person you think managed COVID most effectively, right? Um, and by the way, I bet it's a woman. Um, just 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 to note that. Um, and uh, and here are some of the attributes they had, right? and what we would describe this as they were they're able to navigate the paradoxes of leadership in today's world. So so here's one. They were humble enough to know they didn't know the answer and therefore sought a lot of input from a lot of people. And they actually understood that it was a politically challenging thing, right? So they sought a lot of input from a lot of people. They got epidemiologists, um, public health officials, uh, economists, business people, civil society leaders, probably even talked to psychologists about what would work and not work, right? And I guarantee they did not know what the right answer was after they got that input. But they knew that inaction was way worse than an imperfect answer. And so they had the courage to decide. They made the decision, um, which was a heroic act. And then they were humble again to sort of say, well, what did we get wrong so we can course correct? Um, and, and when they made the decision, they knew they were going to be massively criticized, right? Because, because there wasn't any obvious right answer. And therefore, it was easy to say why it was wrong, right? Um, but they course corrected, which then invites more criticism, um, but they're heroic enough to do that. And then they iterated on an answer and got to the best solution you can find. Um, that is uh, putting together two things that don't usually go together, which is humility and, and heroism. Um, the second one is example is they were technically very sophisticated, probably. They actually understood what the graphs were showing, epidemiological graphs were showing. They understood what the vaccine roots were. They knew what the RNA strategy was, right? They understood um, elements of, of what it took to sort of gather the data to know what, how things are working or not working. But they were deeply human because they knew what would work in their society, right? Or their company or their organization. They knew how people would respond. So they were great natural psychologists and political scientists and sociologists, but deeply technical. Now, ask you, how many people do you know have an electrical engineering degree, but a major in psychology, sociology? Or how many people do you know are PhD biologists that have a, a PhD in, in a social science? And, and there aren't very many. And so, but this leader, the leaders are able to put two things together that feel mutually contradictory, which is deep technical expertise or ability to actually understand technology, at least, and a real sense of human systems and humanity. And so... I would, we argue in the book that there's actually six such paradoxes um, and, and they, they reveal a very different kind of leader. Um, so an example of that is if you're going to navigate paradoxes, you have to be deeply self-reflective and you have to care and show that you do. Right. Um, and, and I think that you were seeing that that's the kind of leader that people resonate to and can effectively navigate the very ambiguous where we live in today. You just described the first eight weeks of the coaching that I did at the onset of COVID. And that is why this podcast was created. Great. Right. You talked about inaction, you know, that's imperfection. Imperfection is, I think one of the best qualities within heart-centered leadership that yes. any leader can have 
And it's really granted me a a beautiful opportunity to have these conversations for almost a year. But I was having those conversations with C-suite leaders. What do I tell my people? I can't be vulnerable. (laughs) I'm a CEO. And I said, where, where's the imperfection? Where is the, you know, bringing to the surface within your behavior, the heart-centered leadership qualities? It's okay to not know what you don't know. That's still progression. But if you don't communicate it, like you said, inaction breeds imperfection. But imperfection, when, when it's used to make a decision, like you framed it, is, is being a hero but being wrong and being humble and course correcting to me is I think one of the best ways to show and demonstrate heart centered leadership. I'll tell you an interesting thing about that, Deb, right? Which is, um, you know, for years, what we said to people is built to strength, right? Which I think is good advice, by the way, because you actually want to take advantage of the things you're good at. But actually I think one of the consequences of the complex world we live in is you have to find a way to understand and mitigate weakness, right? Um, and, and, and acknowledge it, right? Um, which is a hard thing for someone to do because many of the leaders that are formal leaders are pretty protected by the systems they run. They, they protect them from seeing flaw, right? Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty serious act of self-reflection to acknowledge the things you're just really bad at and say, I'm going to have to surround myself with people who are good at it and respect them and love them because they aren't me. And, um, and I'm going to work on being better at the things I'm not very good at. That's a, that's a tough thing for someone to do, by the way. Well, and like you said, it's, it's humble to seek the leaders who have the strategy and theory or whatever needs to be done, especially given this time of where we are continuing to adapt. Yeah. That's a good leader and a, a good leader that shares that vision. But that doesn't mean that they're going to have, you know, by osmosis, all the knowledge and all the strategy to do so. Exactly. The question is, how do you have a, how do you have a strategy you know you're going to adjust in real time? Right. Um, which is why I think you like the word adapt. And, um, and then what does it mean to, because part of what you have to do as a leader is create a sense of confidence in people that they can move forward. Because the, the challenge of COVID is do people emerge with hope? And, and the only way people emerge with hope is to have a view of how the future could be better, right? Um, now, the problem is you could paint that picture in a false way and say, I absolutely know it's going to be better in this way, right? And anyone who says that's lying because no one knows what the future is going to look like today. It's too complicated. Or you could paint a picture that says, I have a rough idea and uh, let's get started, right? Um, and uh, I think in a way that used to not sit very well. I think today that sits really well with people. Oh, I agree with you. And it, it, it lends nicely a, a segue to my next question. All of my guests have got this question. Okay. We would like to know what imperfections does Blair bring to his heart-centered leadership? <laughs> Where to begin? Um, so so I, I think I'd, I'd uh, emphasize two. Um. One of them is uh, I actually, I I have this naive view that it can be. 
Now, this is interesting. This is an interesting problem, right? Because I spend my life actually studying how organizations don't work and what we do to fix them, right? Um, but there's a part of me that wakes up every morning and says, that's just disappointed, right? Because, you know, how could it be this way? How could, how could we let that person be the leader? How could we... How could we be so stupid in the decision we just take? How could we continue to do what we know is wrong, right? And and so there's a part of me that just gets disappointed a lot, um, and and I think that's in a way a good thing because it it forces you to want to make things better all the time. But there are moments where it it just you know it's it's kind of distressing, I guess. Um, uh, so the, I never killed a little boy, I think is the answer, the first answer to your question, um, that the, the liked King Arthur, right? Um, and never recognized that, this, that the round table eventually failed, right? Um, the second piece, I think, is um, I'm, I'm growing less patient than I used to be. And... Um, because I think the issues the world's grappling with are more important than we're acknowledging them. We're not moving fast enough. And, and I'm, uh, I occasionally let that show when I probably shouldn't. Well, I think the virtue of patience is one that is continual and evolving. I used to have an Irish Nana who said it's the most important virtue and you're never going to master it because it's a daily practice. (laughs) And I think, I think cognitively, it's really hard for us to live in the now when we're in this continual adapt mode. So the problem for me is um, I really do believe we are at a, at a point in, in society in the world where we make it better or it goes worse. Right. And, um, and I desperately want it to be better. Um, and, um, uh, so, so that's the source of the impatience. The problem is that it's okay to be patient, impatient internally. You just can't let it show, um, as often as I probably feel it, because if you let it show too much, then, then you lose people, right? Um, people don't want to disappoint you anybody. They just don't want to disappoint people. Right. And impatience, showing impatience is, is revealing to a person you're disappointed in them. And so if what you're going to try to do is create hope in people, um, you have to be internally impatient, but, um, externally hopeful. Right. And, uh, I, I work at that, but there are days when my impatience shows. <laughs> well, and I, I think we all can allude to the same thing and, I think it goes back to what you said on the last question. Our challenge is maybe to start the day and just really want to give people hope. And yeah. I think if we can keep that strategy, like you said, in real time and just have hope for the future, it's kind of a, a reconnect or a renewal as opposed to a disconnect in our behavior. And, and, and you know what? Being mindful. Uh, nobody's perfect. We're all imperfect human beings. Yep. And uh, we're still working through unprecedented times. So my next question, I want to talk about your book. I'm uh, very intrigued to read this. You say that the solutions to the world's most urgent challenges are within reach, but we only have 10 years to midnight. Yes. And you talk about four urgent global crises and their strategic solutions. 
So I just would love to name the four and I would love for you to give us kind of a, a glimpse into your vision for this and how you brought it to fruition. And I know that some of the progress that you talk about was by the Marshall Plan is now unraveled. And you talk about the four crises as a crisis of prosperity, a crisis of technology, a crisis of institutional legitimacy, and a crisis of le leadership. Yeah. So give us that bird's eye view of where the vision came from, how long it took you to write it, and do you feel settled now that you're releasing 10 years to midnight? <laughs> so it's now nine years because we published the book last summer, right? Um, so it's, it's now, and I think COVID accelerated a few things. So it's probably, it's probably nine and a quarter years. Um, so uh, one thing is I'm an, I'm an incredible optimist, by the way. So it's, it's hard for me to write a book about crisis um, because I just, I just don't accept the phrase very easily. Um, and you wouldn't expect an organization like PwC to write a book about crisis. Ten years to midnight with a ticking clock is not what you'd expect us to write. Um, so we came to the book begrudgingly, Deb. Um, the, the reason we came to it is, it, you, if you think about the, the things I described, we talked about related to adapt, which is people's worries. We said, let's go study them and see if they're real. And what happened is the same pattern came up again and again and again. It came up, four, it came up three times, right? Um, Three of the crises are first order and leadership's a second order crisis. Um, and, and the pattern's the following thing, which is there's a challenge now that's really hard and, and really quite, quite serious. It gets worse next year. It gets worse year after that. And if we don't address it in a decade, it goes very dark, right? So let me use the, the one of the disruption, technology disruptions as an example, which is climate. So... When the founders of the Industrial Revolution created the Industrial Revolution, they had no idea they were putting CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere. So it wasn't intentional, nor was the, the consequences of IT for um, um, social life and, and individual well-being and, and, our, and our society. It, it's, a, it's an unintended consequence, side effect, right? Um, but it's a big one. And um, here's the challenge. Forest fires in Australia were really bad two years ago. They were much worse last year. This year, they were okay. The reason they were okay is they had massive flooding, right? Forest fires in Brazil are worse every year. The forest fires on the West Coast of the United States are worse every year. They're growing. They're creeping up into British Columbia. The forest fires in Northern Russia are worse every year. The coral um, sea, the coral in um, Southeast Asia and around Australia is dying at an accelerated rate. So the world's lungs are dying just at a time when Northern Canada and Russia are staying hot much longer, five degrees warmer for a much longer period of time. And therefore the peat moss is unfreezing un and it's releasing methane into the atmosphere, which is way more efficient at heat capture than CO2 is. So we're adding uh, a better heat capture gas just at the time when the world is losing its lungs. And the best thinking is we have a decade to get that straight or it gets really hard to fix. Um, and so we have to act now. And, and the important point about the problem is that it's systemic. So you say, how do you fix climate? Well, how do you grow food? How do you deal with food waste? How do you transport things? How do you manufacture things? How do you build things? And what's your energy system? I think I just described life, Deb. Right? So every business and every organization and every individual on the planet has to adapt what they do in order to create just as good 
you know, you can eat just as well. You can live just as well, but you got to have a different method of doing it. You can probably make it even better, by the way. Um, but you got to do it. You got to do it really fast because we have 10 years. And so the leadership challenge implied by every one of the crises is a really difficult one because it's systemic in that there's a lot of things contributing to it. And by the standards of how quickly we change things like that in society, it is ridiculously fast how we have to deal with it, right? And so the crisis of prosperity essentially is more and more people in the world and more and more places in the world. So think about rural Canada versus the major cities, right? Um, are uh, their future looks worse and worse. We have uh, give you the U.S. data on this for retirees. 92% of private sector employees in the United States are on uh, defined contribution or self-funded retirement. The challenge is um, that you should have saved a lot of money um, by the time you retire or else you don't have anything to retire on because there's no pension, right? Uh, Americans in the private sector between 55 and 65 years old, which is 10 years before retirement, just about to retire, um, less than, I should say, 42% of them have less than $10,000 set aside to live on. 60% have less than $50,000. Now, I ask you, how long can you live in the United States on ten dollars to $50,000? Right. Um, more than half the population about to retire. In Canada, it's slightly better, but your pension is underfunded by about uh, half half of a lifespan, I think. Um, and then you think about kids coming out of college, they come into a job market that's really, really quite terrible, have massive tax burden they're going to live with, can't really afford a house. Um, and so when you put all that together, we have a set of people who are increasingly unsure that the future is going to be attractive. And when that happens, they stop trying, they stop inventing, they stop creating, they stop starting things. And then we think ourselves into a depression. Um, institutional distrust is the same kind of phenomena. And the crisis of leadership is simply the leaders that we created are not the leaders we need to solve the three issues I just described. Um, we need a different kind of leader. And um, so you could think of the book as kind of the first act, first act is a two act play. The first act is pretty depressing. What I just described is pretty scary and very depressing, but actually it's intended to be a book of hope that says there's ways out of this and let's get going. So given we're at nine, nine and a quarter years to go, the first three quarters of the first year, do you think you've set a good foundation for this trajectory to solve some of these challenges? So um, I'm optimistic and pessimistic, right? So on the optimistic side, um, there are, I think there are three things that are working in our favor. First is shareholders are waking up to these issues. And I think when the owner starts to worry, the rest of us pay attention, right? Um, and not, not fast enough, but I think they're waking up pretty fast because um, they're all realizing that the challenges to the organizations they've invested in, um, it's all, it's, they're, they're quite material right now for the businesses they're investing in. Second one is I think COVID has taught us we can do things massively and quickly when we focus. And so one of the issues we need to do is focus on what matters most right? and, and then take it on. Um, and I think the third one is that um, the kind of leader we need revealed themselves during COVID. And so I think we are, we are likely to have more people who look like what we need over the next couple of years than we did before. Um, 
and not even the animals. The kids are angry, and and uh, they have a right to be, by the way. And and I and I hope that anger gets channeled into hope and actually making a difference versus depression and and tearing the thing down, right? Um, but on the pessimism side, um, I worry that we're talking about symptoms and not underlying causes and the fundamental problems we're focusing, and I worry that we are taking our political leaders in particular and forcing them to focus on so many things that can't get the important ones done. So if you look at what the press does, you, you make progress on something, they get bored and they move to the next one and say, why aren't you dealing with this? Why aren't you dealing with this? It turns out that actually there is a priority to these issues and, and we're not allowing people to set the priority and move on. So, so those would be my two sources of worry. Um, they're big issues that so we need to focus. Um, and so net, net, um, I, I'd probably bet we'll, we'll do great. Um, there's a, depends on whether Monday and Wednesday, I wake up depressed, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I wake up excited. <laughs> well, I like that you said the leaders that we need have really appeared. Yes. And I can tell you that as an executive coach, I coach in five countries And the ones that were prepared for anything to come, especially within the crisis management element of leadership, they have, I'm going to say, sailed through this fairly well and use your your word adapt. The ones that became complacent and were not prepared, you're right. They either are no longer in that role or they've had to adapt and really focus on what matters most, as you said. So I think so. It's, it's been an interesting observation for sure. And you've led nicely into my last leadership question. I have kind of a list of six leadership challenges that I see around the world from my clients. I would love to know what you feel is the top three from Blair's perspective. What are the top three leadership challenges that you feel we're facing globally at this time? I know you mentioned the managing the stakeholders, which is one of mine. Is there another set of three or two that you would kind of put in your top three, Blair? So in the book, we have six paradoxes we describe, right? Um, and I would have trouble prioritizing those. Um, but... but um, let me describe the characteristics that create them and then, and then try to rank the three. So first one is um, we have to deal with things that are coming at us faster that have deeper seated systemic issues associated with them. And that's a hard thing to do, which is how do you address a systemic problem quickly? Right. Um, the second one is we don't know the right answer um, because we're, we're navigating a whole new world. Um, and, and therefore, um, addressing the ambiguity of the leadership challenge is really hard. And then I think the third one is that there are way more people that you have to bring with you who have very divergent views. So think about the, the, the crisis of institutional legitimacy. Part of the reason for that is the polarization and adapt, right? Um, which is there's lots of constituents who simply don't agree with each other. Right. So you have a really hard set of problems that are systemic in nature. It's not at all clear what the answer is. And you have you have people who fundamentally disagree with each other. You got to bring on board. And, and there's a lot of them you have to bring in order to get any answer achieved. 
So for me, that creates the paradox we described. Let me give you the ones that I think are really, really difficult. First one is, how do you have the political skill to bring all the people you have to bring with you and, and, and use integrity as the primary vehicle for pulling that off? Um, because oftentimes um, political activity um, sort of forgives integrity in order to get the, and get the outcome to happen, but actually need it more than ever. So the second one is how do you know what's really critical to bring forward um, and retain sort of what's at the core of who you are and what your purpose is, and then innovate with everything else. You think about the, the drug discovery piece you described, they were really clear. Pfizer was really clear, for example, that they were going to do the, the development process in a way that was way better than the FDA would require. So they preserved the baby, you can think of, and then did every, everything else they completely changed the rules for. So they knew what they had to preserve and then, and then what they had, and then they changed everything else and carried it forward. Um, so we call that tradition innovator. And then I think the other one is this issue of uh, how do you have the humility to know you don't know the answer, but the heroism to take a decision anyway um, and bring people with you. Those would be, I think, but we described six in our own core. Those would be three that come from what I described as the problem, the, the inherent nature of the problem we're dealing with. Well, I think one of the ways is being an imperfect heart-centered leader. I agree with that. Like you described, it's the leader we need globally. And one of the things that really resonated with me is, you know, we have to stop focusing on the symptoms and we need to get to the etiology, the root, the cause, you know, we, we see a, a repetition in leadership from the behavior. So we have to figure out where that's coming from. So, oh my gosh, Blair, I could sit and talk to you all day. Deb, just a point I want to emphasize around heart-centered. I think one of the things that's really interesting that revealed itself during COVID is that people who cared and show they did worked. That leadership style worked. And so for the first time in a way, you're allowed to show that you have a heart, you have feelings, you care, that things matter. And, um, and that's not a critique. It's actually a fundamental attribute of a successful leader today. I think that's a sea change. And I think that may be the best gift that COVID ever gave us. Well, I agree with you. And, and I've had many leaders say to me, do you think heart-centered leadership's new? And I don't. I think it's the perfect definition of a paradigm. And it's exactly the way you just framed it. Being kind is not a weakness. And when leaders can be humble and remove that armor from their chest and, and drop that wall of resistance and say, I don't know, and be okay with it and ask their team for help and really exude, you know, those heart-centered leadership qualities, especially they're not letting go of their responsibility, but they're opening up an on-ramp or ability to fail forward that doesn't make them weak. I think it shows how you framed it. They're humble and they can't know everything about everything just because they have a title, a role and a sheet of responsibility. It's a fascinating thing though, uh, admitting that about yourself, right? When you, um, uh, but I agree with you entirely. Um, and uh, it, it, that, so it, in the end, I think the degree to which 
people in the world who are being led and citizens who are electing come to realize that about leaders. That's the thing that gives me massive optimism. Well, I'm, I'm aligned with you. I am eternal optimistic myself. So I'm going to switch gears and we're going to, we're going to have some fun and I'm going to ask you my fab four. We just, we want to know what's sitting on that brilliant mind of yours. So first question, tell us something we don't know about Blair Shepard. (laughs) Oh, um, uh, uh, so when I was at Western, I was a swimmer. Um, and you wouldn't know what to look at me today. <laughs> Second question, who is a leader they could be living or have passed away that you would like to meet and why? Yeah, um, there's, I think I'd actually like to have met Abraham Lincoln. Um, and, and the reason is, I think the capacity to persist um, at a time when everything suggested not to, um, there's a level of kind of courage in that that I think is really remarkable. Um, I love the way you said that the capacity to persist and, and in today's languaging, would we, would we call that the definition of grit? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's or resilience, right? Um, right. Uh, but there's a courage in that, which is um, you, um, it is, we just like to have thought, I'd like to have heard the mind that, that thought through that process in a way. Um, the problem is there's millions I'd love to talk to. Um, yeah, me too. One. Yeah. Question three, do you have any dreams or aspirations for 2021? Um, yeah, so I really believe what's in the book, right? So the aspiration I have is that we get clear headed as a society around the world in every country, and we begin to make progress against, um, the things that are really serious challenges, but if we address them, right, the world could be spectacular. So, so better diagnosis and real movement would be my goal for 2021. I love that. And my last question is, what would you like your legacy to be? Um, so, so I tell this, I give this advice to people who ask me questions about that are usually about career choices. And I said, so imagine your great, great granddaughter is sitting on your knee and asked you, did you do good? Their grammar isn't all that great. And you say, I don't know. And then they ask the question, what criteria would you use? Right. To answer that question. Um, and, uh, and so it's pretty simple for me um, that the people I touch are better because I was there and that the world is a little better because I was there. It doesn't get any better than that. I have really enjoyed my time speaking with you. I'm, again, cultivating huge gratitude today for carving out some time to be on the show and for sharing your expertise. And I am going to order 10 years to midnight, even though I know we're three quarters of a year in. I'm intrigued (laughs) to, to read and I'm humbled with 
your vantage point and your lens on leadership and, and even being heart centered and being open to say, you know, it was difficult to write this book, but you did it. And I'm excited to read it and continue to watch you from afar with your leadership. And always a pleasure to talk to a fellow Canadian. Yeah, thanks, Deb. And one thing I just want to acknowledge, by the way, is I'm, I'm really thrilled you started with the word team. Um, because there's a bunch of authors on that book. Um, and, uh, and it's their minds and their hearts that are in it, um, as much or more than mine. And so, uh, I'm glad you started. I'm glad you started with that phrase. Well, every leader is only as good as its team and the <laughs> shared vision that he, you know, projects to look out. Most leaders are seven to 10 years. And I think that's just a healthy, healthy version of talking about a heart centered leader. I agree with seven to 10 years and I enjoyed it a lot. Deb. So thanks. And I'm, and let me know how you like, how you like the book. I absolutely will. And we are going to post the information below in the podcast episode description. So you can find Blair, you can get a copy of 10 years to midnight and find Blair on social media. We would love for you to rate and review the show. And I want to thank you for spending time with us today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.